0: on against the grain. There's the individual and there's the social. But what if society doesn't really exist? And what happens when a political conjuncture fuels antisocial attitudes and inclinations? I'm CS. We'll revisit a conversation with Theodore Martin, who considered these questions through the lenses of U.S. history and literature, coming right up. This is Against the Grain. On Pacifica Radio, my name is C.S. Song. Is there such a thing as society? Scholars across the disciplines are becoming increasingly comfortable with the idea that there isn't. So begins a thought-provoking essay by Theodore Martin about society as concept and reality, about what he calls a key antisocial moment in U.S. history, and about what he characterizes as a new kind of antisocial novel one that emerged in the wake of World War II. So what does it mean to say that society doesn't exist, or that the concept of society isn't useful? What happened in mid-20th century America that remade the idea of society? And why did writers like Richard Wright and novels like Strangers on a Train feature criminal sociopaths who rejected social norms and, in some cases, the idea of society itself? Theodore Martin, a literary historian and English professor based at the University of California, Irvine, has written an essay about society and antisocial sentiment that appears in a new volume entitled *The Big No*, edited by Kenan Ferguson. When Ted and I connected recently, I asked him what the French thinker Bruno Latour said about whether society exists.
1: For Latour, and for and part of the kind of like the main. Of the core idea that comes out of kind of this field of thinking that Latour kind of helps found actor network theory is the idea that the concept of society kind of is no longer kind of a useful conceptual heuristic right it's no longer something that's that's kind of helpful for us to think with and what Latour wants to say is that you know we talk so much about society about social forces about social determination, but really the thing we're talking about is kind of basically completely invented, right? It's a habit of thought and a habit of speech to kind of confer onto this abstraction called society this kind of set of um, kind of features and this kind of agency, right? The idea that society can do things to us that it, um, right, that it's both the site of say kind of repressive violence forms of exploitation and exclusion that these are things we kind of confer onto society and it's kind of a category mistake and so for Latour what he wants to say is and he kind of here he kind of jokingly but I think not so jokingly invokes the famous Margaret Thatcher line there's no such thing as society and Latour wants to say this is actually a useful thing for us to say as well that there's no such thing as society and what we need to do instead is Kind of think about temporary connections, right? momentary flashes of relationality between humans, between humans and non-humans in the way that kind of people and objects are put into kind of temporary, flexible networks of relationality. And there there's kind of a lot more one could say about Latour, but I think the thing just to kind of say from the outset is, kind of I, and a lot of thinkers ultimately read his critique of society as a, a coded or maybe a not so coded anti-Marxism, right? It's really about a refusal to accept or a skepticism toward the category of the social totality, the fact that we can talk about um, kind of capitalist social relations as a large scale system and latour wants to say actually right we only have these kind of these momentary flexible weak ties and connections and there's no point in talking about that larger sense of social totality. So one of the reasons the essay starts with him is to start with that provocation and to kind of speak back to it in a way to say like what's at stake what are we really getting rid of when we get rid of the concept of society? Um, and then what are, some, what, are some, what are some of the history and what's some of the literary history um, of ways that we've kind of tried to grapple with this question of whether something called society, this kind of abstraction that we have a, uh, kind of an intuitive sense of but that we can't pin down or point to in any empirical way, um, whether that abstraction actually exists.
0: Well, let me give you this hypothetical. Let's say someone is in an airplane looking down, let's say, on a village. Everybody's outside, and that person in the plane points to this collectivity, these people, and says, that is society. That is not a concept. That is a empirically verifiable entity called society. Uh, what do you think Latour might say to that, or, or what might you say to that?
1: I really, I really like that example. Um, and yeah, I mean, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to say that, you know, that, like, there's a kind of part of me that wants to hesitate as well. I think that Latour's answer would be something along the lines of, right, you know, why talk about, right, the, that uh, kind of in general as society when what you're really interested in are the specific Individuals and the specific objects that are kind of in forms of relation, right down there on the ground. So you're you're looking at it from that bird's eye view, but for Latour, you're kind of missing the ways they're relating, right? What are they doing? Um, are they playing a game? Are they engaged in some kind of exchange? Right? Different people doing different things. That's certainly that's not that's not my position, um, but I actually I, I I kind of keep coming back to of the the French sociologist Emile Durkheim's thinking about society and what he spent a lot of his work in the late 19th century doing was actually arguing against bourgeois economists at the time who wanted to say again there's no such thing as society Society is is this kind of mental error and all we really have are individual economic actors we kind of recognize this way of thinking i think from from 20th century microeconomics um, we have these kind of economic actors who are just kind of interacting, right, in these temporary ways. And the thing that Durkheim really wanted to pin down is that there are kind of, there's some set of forces, right, habits, customs, that are generalized and external, right. They're generalized and they set in the sense that they kind of govern, the actions and behaviors and customs and habits of whole groups of people, not just individuals, but also that they're external, that they seem to emanate not from within individuals or individual relations, but at some kind of more general, kind of abstract point. I think there's something really powerful about that claim, which is partly a claim about defending The necessity of abstraction, right, the necessity of abstraction for thinking, say, about social relationships under capitalism, right, which requires a level of generality, a level of scale, but also a level of abstraction, the idea that there are things going on that you can't necessarily see, right, or empirically measure but that exists kind of, right at the level, nevertheless, of a kind of the feeling of a social force, a social compulsion. For Durkheim, this is right, all the kinds of customs that we have, but it's also the institutions that human beings make that govern different social structures. So I think of Durkheim as like, yeah, really kind of giving us license to think abstractly uh, about society precisely by reminding us that we need some way to understand what it is that governs and shapes and determines how we interact with each other in a way that doesn't necessarily emanate from each of us individually, right? But it exists at some kind of collective and abstract level. And I think that in your example, which I really love, that's the other thing that you're never going to be able to see from the airplane, right? No matter how high it goes, no matter how far down and of widely you're able to see are the kind of invisible sets of Customs, institutionalized forms of social relation that make up in an important way what we think of as
0: society. You write that the novel is at once a profoundly social literary form and a peculiarly antisocial one. Tell us about the social and antisocial sides to the novel.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question, um, and here I'm I'm kind of drawing on and and relying on a lot of kind of classic novel theory, um, but there are there are two I think kind of really important uh, or kind of paired accounts of what the novel form did. So the novel is a form that kind of emerges in English, say kind of around the seventeenth century. And there's some like really powerful and really persuasive accounts about kind of, the role the novel played in kind of the development of modern society and the modern nation state so on one side we could say the the social uses of the novel involved the idea that right one of the things that reading this particular kind of work did was that it taught readers how to sympathize and identify with People who weren't themselves, right? Um, Kind of gave them some way of engaging, kind of, with the problem of strangers, which is, right, we can kind of think of as kind of one of the fundamental problems of a rapidly urbanizing modern society. Um, And to kind of borrow a phrase from the theorist Benedict Anderson, we could say that the novel helps create a kind of invisible community, which would be right one, maybe one useful way of thinking about what we mean when we talk about society. Uh, but for Anderson is, is also about kind of more specifically like what the content of the nation state is. It's this invisible community, right? This sense of being connected by national belonging to other people that you can't see and don't know. And in his account, reading a novel both through our engagements with the kinds of fictional characters and fictional plots that we'd find there, but also the experience that other people could be reading that same novel simultaneously is one way of understanding the novel as playing this role in kind of founding or shoring up or really instructing readers in how to understand a kind of modern society that was right kind of right had very quickly kind of grown beyond the realm of the visible right beyond the realm of and of right your neighbors and people that you might know so I think that's the way of understanding the sociality and sociability of the novel um, that it helps people kind of understand themselves as part of a larger community but if you think about novel reading you can actually see that there are kind of ironically antisocial aspects to the rise of the novel as well. This would be the idea that kind of one of the kind of main things that the novel in its early form over the first right, several centuries, the kind of 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, that kind of novels are kind of very much about the domestic sphere, not the larger public sphere. Um, Ultimately, they're they're about the primacy of subjectivity and interiority. So there are kind of also thinkers and theorists who think that like the very idea of the modern individual, right, the person who's kind of different and unique from everyone else, is partly invented through the novel and through novel reading, which gives us that idea of the kind of the rich subjective life of the individual. And we can also think about the novel's social function, which is that one thing it does is that it encourages people to immerse themselves in episodes of private reading, um, right? Uh, the novel is, right, kind of precisely as yes, something different from oral forms of storytelling, something that you read silently to yourself and by yourself and it's actually right I mean you know you could the 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 example that kind of resonates for me now right is the kind of like being immersed in your novel on the subway or on the bus on the way to work Is kind of a way to kind of exit that social space right and we say like the language of novel ad copy to immerse yourself in the fictional world of a novel so those are the ways that I I think the novel is just like a really fascinating Literary form and literary historical form, because it raises kind of both sides sort of or like these kind of tensions in how we think about the idea of society and social belonging. On the one hand, it kind of gives us a glimpse of what society is, and on the other hand it encourages what we might call in other contexts, these kind of antisocial behaviors, right? The, the primacy of private life, of the individual, of private reading. And I think the novel is a really interesting site where those tensions, right? And ultimately the tension between how we understand ourselves and how we understand our relationship to other people really comes to the fore.
0: His name is Theodore Martin. He's associate professor of English at University of California, Irvine. And we are talking about an essay he contributed to the new volume, The Big No. The essay's title is Antisocial, A Literary History. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. In this essay, you focused, Ted, on three 20th century, mid 20th century novels, and we'll get to them. And yet you spend some of the early part of your article on 19th century Britain and 19th century British novels. Can you speak briefly about why you chose to begin your sort of historical discussion that way?
1: yeah,' I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert in in 19th century British fiction, but I'll say a few things. Um, as we'll kind of circle back in a moment to kind of thinking about I think some of the the problems that American novels posed to us in the in the mid 20th century. one of the things that interest me about those mid 20th century novels is this increased focus on forms and behaviors of antisociality. And it turns out that the, the other key sites that scholars have written a lot about kind of the problem of the antisocial is in 19th century British literature. And and there are kind of interesting historical reasons for that. The 19th century right, is kind of the moment when Britain becomes right, the kind of fully industrialized, fully urbanized, newly dense kind of society. It's also a moment at which British society kind of becomes its own object of study in the form of the founding of sociology as a discipline. So there's this idea that 19th century Britain is intensely aware of the problem of society as an object of thought and an object of study, and then is intensely aware of the problem of how we understand our belonging to that society. So literary scholars have pointed out that there are, all of these different british writers in that era who are becoming increasingly drawn to writing fiction that involves some fantasy of anti-social escape or withdrawal from from the world you could think of the the um the famous oscar wilde quote right the only possible society is oneself so it seems like what we have in 19th century british fiction is in a certain sense an awareness of this feeling of the new inescapability of sociality right of kind of belonging to and inscription by modern british society and so we have writers who are offering these fantasies of escape in the novel that are marked precisely as fantasies as the thing that British writers, British subjects at that moment, didn't feel was available in everyday life. And I think that turns out to be in a kind of really interesting and productive contrast with how American writers in the mid-20th century start to use antisociality for their own purposes, which is to kind of become interested in literary forms of anti-sociality precisely at this moment where the idea of the necessity and the power of social belonging was starting to fray um, in the American 1950s and in the wake of the New Deal. And so I think that's kind of the really interesting contrast that the British, the history of the British novel's relationship to antisociality lets us think about.
0: So if to understand antisocial fiction in the 20th century and in the mid 20th century, we need to understand the fraying of those social bonds that you're referring to, what did happen to the state and to people in the wake of World War II in the US?
1: The '50s are a, a really, really interesting moment, partly because this is the kind of the the kind of birth of what will become the kind of the full-fledged civil rights movement by the end of the '50s and the beginning of the '60s. But there are also kind of really interesting things that happen in the 1950s in terms of the fraying of of and of what some scholars call kind of the the New Deal. A social order. So, what we see happening in by the end of the '40s, the beginning of the '50s, right after kind of the New Deal showed flashes, um, despite the really important racial exclusions that were structured into it, but glimpses of a moment where the kind of structure of class antagonism between workers and labor was understood as kind of a defining element of modern society. And what happens in the 1950s and in the wake of the post-war boom is that kind of those new deal liberals start to become more accommodated to and willing to compromise with the centrality of the free market so you basically have this kind of booming consumer economy and a lot of policy decisions begin to focus less on wealth equality and redistribution and more on kind of economic growth, right? Economic growth, who's uh, uh, kind of one of whose main kind of social symbols was the, the happy consumer, right? Now awash in all these new kinds of consumer choices. So, kind of, this is this moment where we get a liberal accommodation with the free market at the very same time that we start to see kind of the first glimmers of deindustrialization. So, one thing that happens in the 1950s is that. In northern cities, hundreds of thousands of manufacturing jobs begin to disappear, right as a growing black population and kind of a rise from the south, looking both for freedom from Jim Crow and also for jobs. Um, and so, you also see at this moment the first signs of kind of rising unemployment tied to deindustrialization that is uh, kind of particularly victimizes non-white workers. So, but if we have on the one hand The new bipartisan commitment to the free market, to privatization, to a kind of withdrawal of kind of ideas about social welfare. And on the other hand, the effects of deindustrialization along with um, kind of racial antagonism and racial violence that kind of deeply shaped the 1950s. And in all these ways, I think it's possible to start to think of the 50s as this signal antisocial moment. In American history, where the very ideas of society, and the social whole, the social good receded from view, um, right, both in terms of kind of mainstream politics, but also say in terms of of, kind of even union activism, right, union power was being severely weakened at that moment, and so kind of this this shift from the social collective to the individual seems like it has a lot of power and a lot of centrality in this moment in the
0: 1950s. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Theodore Martin joins us. He teaches English at University of California, Irvine. He's author of Contemporary Drift, Genre, Historicism, and the Problem of the Present. And We are talking about an article he wrote about anti-sociality, and literature you can find that essay in the new volume the big no edited by canon ferguson and published by the university of minnesota press so you call this moment the moment you're describing a newly antisocial moment in american history are you arguing then and i, I guess you are that this moment created the conditions for the emergence of a new type of antisocial novel and if so what kind of novel was it
1: that's exactly right so i want to suggest that looking at the new kinds of antisocial dynamics that shape american culture at this moment that we see the emergence of a new kind of antisocial novel and i mean this is for me, just kind of like the most interesting thing to to grapple with and and think through in the material, in this essay, um, which is, I mean, to come at it from the literary side, the key puzzle that interests me and continues to interest me is like, why do we get this particular kind of antisocial, sociopathic American novel in the nineteen fifties? Um, and I can say a little bit more what of what I'm thinking of there. So the the novels I write about in this essay um, are uh, Patricia Highsmith's Strangers on a Train, Jim Thompson's The Getaway, and Richard Wright's The Outsider. And and one of the things that I'm trying to think through here is that, so these are all crime novels, um, and those are all crime writers who write fiction that's written from the perspective not of detectives but of criminals. And this is actually a, a really fascinating and significant shift that happens in the literary marketplace around this time. So in the heyday of the pulp magazines, the 1920s, the 1930s, um, a primary and immensely popular, immensely lucrative kind of crime fiction that was getting written was detective fiction, specifically this uniquely American style of hard-boiled detective fiction we associate with writers like Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, um, and so there is, in, in, the, in of the crime fiction of the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, this emphasis on the detective and their attempt to grapple um, and in, in, in some minimal ways uh, restore order to a kind of chaotic or corrupt world. And you know, not exclusively in the nineteen fifties, there are examples of this kind of earlier on. But kind of in the fifties, there starts to be this swell of novels by writers like Highsmith, Thompson, Wright, and others that are focused on the perspective of the criminal. This particular kind of antisocial, we might even say, sociopathic. I don't mean that in a kind of psychologizing sense, but just kind of, as a marker of that kind of that sense of the kind of the loss of. Social ties. This new kind of antisocial protagonist, in the form of the criminal or the murderer, and this is what we get in all three of these novels. So the puzzle for me is like like what explains the emergence of this kind of novel? *Strangers on a Train* I and mean, another example by Highsmith would be *The Talented Mr. Ripley*. What explains the emergence of this kind of novel? at this moment, why was it that these writers and you know, the readers who, who read these books were kind of thinking about the possibility with identifying with this kind of character? And what I argue here is that what these novels are kind of really quite explicitly about is precisely the idea that they no longer believe that there's this thing called society that they can be said to belong to and to be responsible to so there's this waning of a some sense of kind of collective belonging shared struggle and a focus on individuality which in all of these cases is flagged in these novels as a kind of violent or kind of murderous individuality. An individuality that, freed from social constraints and social responsibilities, can effectively do whatever the hell it wants, right? In these cases, rob, kill, etc. So this becomes just like the really interesting literary problem for me. And this is this is how I approach it as a literary historian, which is kind of we have this kind of this new kind of novel. What explains its cultural and historical salience at this moment?
0: Well, let's talk in some detail about Patricia Highsmith's 1950 crime novel, Strangers on a Train, which contains what you call one of the great antisocial moments in American literature. That moment comes, I believe, in the novel's final scene. Tell us about Guy Haines, the character. What should we know about him and, and what happens in that scene? Yeah, this is, it's
1: really a remarkable scene. It's one of my, one of my favorite scenes in, in American literature. Um, listeners might know this Highsmith novel from the, the Hitchcock adaptation, which comes out, uh, I think, about a year after the novel was published. Hitchcock changed a fair amount. Highsmith's version is, is, is better, in my opinion. Um, but the kind of famously simple plot of this novel, ar- an architect, Guy Haynes, on a train uh, from New York to Texas kind of meets a kind of wealthy, kind of aimless sociopath named Guy Bruno, uh, sorry, Charles Bruno. Charles Bruno becomes kind of obsessed with Guy and proposes that they kind of basically make this exchange where Bruno will murder Guy's ex-fiance in exchange for having Guy murder Bruno's father. And so Guy finds himself kind of wrapped up in this plot and compelled to kind of follow through on Bruno's plan. At the very end of the novel, he travels back to Texas, and he finds um, his ex-fiancee who's who's been killed, her boyfriend at the time she was killed, and decides that he's going to make this big confession to his ex-fiancee's boyfriend, a man named Owen. So he goes to meet Owen in a hotel room, and he starts to confess his responsibility. And Guy realizes that Owen doesn't really care about his confession. Um, And from that, he starts to spiral out, and he thinks to himself, if Owen doesn't care, who would care? Whose business is it? And he thinks to himself, well, it should be society's business, right? Society is the, the site of regulations and rules, right? The laws that would kind of subject him to prosecution. He thinks it should be society's business. And then he thinks, who is society? In other words, who is it who's meant to stand in for what we imagine to be that you kind know, of all-seeing, all-knowing, kind of power of society and social responsibility. And Guy goes through all the people that he knows, and he realizes that none of them would take the responsibility of turning him in if they knew what he had done. And what he says is, everyone would leave it for someone else who would leave it for someone else who would leave it for someone else. So this is this sort of stunning moment where Highsmith wants to say, and this is where I think we kind of see very much the the foreshadowing of either a claim like Margaret Thatcher's or a claim like Bruno Latour's that society doesn't exist, this stunning moment where Highsmith wants to say, what we think of as society and what we think of as this thing called social responsibility, responsibility to an abstract set of norms, is really a shell game. And we imagine that we do these things because other people expect us to, and other people do these things because they think we expect them to. But at the end of the day, nobody gives a damn. And I mean, so this is like, I mean, it's kind of a deeply cynical and disturbing endpoint. But it's so interesting to me that she phrases it in terms of this specific question, who is society? Kind of an amazing sentence, right? We don't think of society as a who. We think of it as a what. And what she wants to say is because we kind of can't pinpoint any individual as being the stand-in and the arbiter of social responsibility, that we have to conclude that this kind of social responsibility doesn't really exist in a meaningful way at all. And I think this is the note, um, the really disturbing note that she ends the novel on. But I think what's really interesting about the novel and and some of these other novels that I write about here um, that feature these sociopathic protagonists is that I think they want, they give us characters who are kind of wrestling with this idea that society doesn't exist. But in other ways, they're also revealing to us precisely the way that some sense of social determination right maybe not in the form of responsibility to other people which some people may feel and some people may not but society again as a, a larger idea of kind of generalized collective kind of institutions that really do kind of shape both the way people are but also the ways they understand themselves to belong so what interesting thing about reading Strangers on a Train now, is that I think one of the reasons, clearly, that Guy can imagine that society is really this thing that lets people off the hook, and why that's wrapped up in this scene of confession, is because he's a respectable white guy, right, who doesn't feel the force of policing, the force of criminal justice, in the way that kind of an accused person of color might so i think that kind of guy's whiteness his straightness um, in the novel his professional status he's an architect um, kind of actually shape his ability to kind of imagine that you know there's no such thing as society there's no such thing as social determination and i think that's kind of an interesting contrast to the character of bruno who kind of most critics read as harboring um, a kind of queer desire for guy that he can never articulate. Um, he's never able to kind of say that he desires guy in this way. But the novel makes fairly clear that he does. And so you know this is this moment in the early '50s, um, a moment of, kind of intense homophobia, which was kind of very much linked to anti-communism. In the form of something like the Lavender Scare, kind of the purging of government employees who were suspected of being gay, I think this is very much on on Highsmith's mind, and it's a place where kind of the problem of social exclusion and social repression actually comes in. On one hand, even as the novel is saying, with the other hand, that it doesn't really believe in this thing called society. It's still showing us the forces of oppression and exclusion that we would locate kind of at the level of society and social institutions. And I think that doubleness, uh, that dialectic nature of, kind of thinking about the antisocial is something that makes Highsmith's novel really powerful, and it's really not unique to her novel. I think it's a dynamic that plays out in so many of the novels about criminals and sociopaths that come out in the 1950s, which is that they're interested both in what it looks like to sever all social ties, to no longer obey norms and laws, but they're also intensely aware that that act of severing is also tied to structures of exclusion and exploitation and abandonment that we really need the concept of society in order to talk about.
0: My guest is Theodore Martin. He's an English professor at University of California, Irvine. We are talking about his essay, Antisocial, A Literary History. It's part of the new volume, The Big No, published by the University of Minnesota Press. We have a link to that book, as well as to Ted's homepage, faculty page at UC Irvine, as well as to his book, Contemporary Drift, Genre, Historicism, and the Problem of the Present, on our website, againstthegrain.org. My name is C.S. Song. You turn next in this piece to Jim Thompson's 1958 novel, The Getaway, which features a husband and wife criminal team on the lam. Uh, How do Doc and Carol McCoy run afoul of the law, and where do they end up?
1: Thompson's Getaway is a is a fascinating novel and uh, Thompson himself was kind of a, a, a middling, uh, not a middling, he was an, an excellent but a not hugely well-known paperback writer in the 1950s. His most famous novel that, that listeners might know is The Killer Inside Me from 1952, which is I mean a um, kind of very much in the vein of Highsmith's Strangers on a Train, a deeply disturbing novel. In um, his novel The Getaway, 1958 is about a husband and wife couple who are bank robbers and kind of, kind of plays on the idea that right, p- despite the fact that they are if married really have little sense of loyalty to each other to their partners in the crime right thompson is kind of using the crime novel the bank robbery novel to kind of allegorize a social world where no one has any kind of responsibility or loyalty to one another but what's really amazing about the book, is that it, it ends with this kind of Bravura set piece where the main characters, Doc and Carol, kind of escape with their loot from the bank robbery to an undisclosed location in Mexico that's known as the Kingdom of El Rey. And the Kingdom of El Rey is supposed to be a sanctuary for uh, any kind of criminal. They, they go there and they're kind of shielded from kind of law enforcement and they get to simply live with the money that they've stolen. But the catch is that the kingdom of El Rey costs an arm and a leg to live in. So it's the only safe place for them, but it's a place that's designed to slowly drain away all the money that they bring with them. And this is because like even the banks where they keep their money Charge interest in order to keep your money there. And if you don't keep your money in the bank, it will get stolen. So there are kind of all these ways that El Rey, as a social space, is designed to kind of simply bleed these robbers dry and take away all their money. And so basically, everyone there is profoundly unhappy. And there's a great moment in the novel where someone describes uh, kind of the point of El Rey. And what, what El Rey says is he'll not cheat you. He will not kill you he cannot and will not provide for you but he will not put an end to your life no matter how long you live and so the idea i think for thompson is that this is kind of the perfect allegorical representation of what he sees in american society at this moment the kind of rapaciousness of a capitalist system that is designed precisely to kind of bleed workers dry that will not provide for them in any sense of kind of broader social welfare or collective action, but won't do anything to actively harm them, or well, that will simply kind of leave them to their own devices until they die. And so the final twist in this novel is that while he's watching his money and his savings disappear, Doc wanders to the town that's right next to this kingdom of El Rey. And he's really taken with this town. It's got got these beautiful cobblestone streets, and he's told that everyone there works together and shares and pools resources. And so it's kind of very clearly this kind of flash of a kind of communist collectivist utopia right next door. But then Doc realizes that there's no food for sale in the town, and he asks someone he meets what they eat. And the whole time he's been there, he's been smelling this kind of delicious smell in the air. And what he eventually realizes is that the people in this town next door to El Rey eat each other. And so this is the kind of the twist, this final twist at the end of this novel, this novel of these kind of the the criminals with no kind of ties, no sense of loyalty, no sense of social belonging, kind of end up in a situation where they kind of literally cannibalize and feed on one another. I think this isn't kind of very much what Thompson wants to say about the state of mid-century American society, right? It is precisely this kind of cannibalistic form of consumer capitalism where right, everyone kind of spends and everyone looks out for themselves and that kind if of no one takes care of or provides for anyone else.
0: That's the voice of Theodore Martin. He teaches English at University of California Irvine. I'm CS and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So the third novel you examine and analyze in your piece in this book The Big No is Richard Wright's 1953 novel, The Outsider. It depicts a black postal worker and Chicago resident named Cross Damon. And uh, I'll just summarize a little bit about the plot so we can move uh, more toward your commentary. So, you know, he has certain, of course, family and social obligations, as we all do. And then there's a train crash and he is presumed dead. Uh, He gets confused with somebody else, so he is presumed dead. So he can start anew. He can move somewhere, which he does. He moves away from Chicago, I believe, to New York, and begins anew. And uh, my question is, what does he decide or who does he decide to become? The Outsider is a, a fascinating novel. And so the way that
1: Cross Damon wants to reimagine himself is that he decides to become someone with no social or ethical responsibilities whatsoever. So Cross is this really complicated figure that Wright uses to imagine what would it be like to have no ties to anyone else whatsoever, to feel no sense of connection or solidarity in terms of race, in terms of class, in terms of gender, in terms of sexuality, in terms of family, in terms of community, but to simply be your own kind of self-determined person and if that's kind of surprising for what people think of when they think about richard wright i think it's it's meant to be Um, so the outsider is published in 1953 and wright wrote it when he was living in france and reading a lot of the existentialism that was starting to be published in that era and so i think it's a it's clearly a novel that's influenced by existentialism and it's also a novel written where he's trying to escape i think the the increasingly burdensome weight of his 1940 novel, Native Son, and certainly one of the most important novels of of the 20th century. I mean, also probably the most popular and successful novel by a black author ever written. And Native Son came to so dominate the question of what black literature could and couldn't do that the outsider is Wright's attempt to imagine a kind of absolute existential freedom from kind of those kinds of group determined responsibility um and so it's, it's it's a fascinating and bizarre novel it includes a lot of um this is a novel where wright was rethinking unfortunately but fairly a lot of his earlier um commitments to the communist party which he was in sort a of very active in in the the 1930s and 40s and became kind of disillusioned with kind of partly on kind of on account of kind of how they thought about race and class um, so the outsider kind of has these scenes where cross he kind of murders the communists who are kind of lecturing at him mansplaining to him he kills a fascist neighbor um, and so he's kind of playing on this this kind of tension between communism and fascism and cross is supposed to represent this, Kind of this figure who's kind of above it all right because he has no ethical responsibilities no sense of political connection or solidarity so it's kind of a shocking novel but the other thing that's really fascinating about it and just this, you know just kind of the the pattern that i've been speaking about in all all of these books that feature these antisocial, sociopathic criminal protagonists is that the novel ultimately ends i think by registering the failure of this project, and it's you know it's it's a it's a it's a very long novel. It's you know I think, kind of a little less than six hundred pages, um, and and by the end, which is a long time coming, Wright really I think clearly has the sense that Cross has been right to question, like why it is that we feel connected to other people at all, but that he's also been wrong to assume that that means that such connection collectivity, sociality, that those things are impossible and thus ought to be jettisoned. And so the novel ends with Cross on his deathbed actually feeling not just, I mean, not simply regret for what he's done, which would be more kind of boringly moralistic, but this realization that what he had actually wanted the whole time was, as he puts it, some kind of social recognition to be seen by a society that right? we, we think about. You know, right, this is you know, Jim Crow America in the, the 1940s, the early 1950s, an American society defined by you know, like brutal segregation and anti-black violence. And so it's a novel that has been thinking about race and racial exclusion all along and shows us this like, extreme solution to the problem of racialization and anti-blackness is to um, kind of like disavow one's group identities altogether. And I think by the end, what Wright thinks is that 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 project was doomed, um, both because it's impossible, but also because it's unhelpful, right? It's ultimately a dead end, and he's left desiring precisely the kind of social recognition and connection. And I think we can understand more deeply the kind of collectivity, shared social belonging that he felt had been denied to him in the first place.
0: Well, three very interesting, uh, disturbing novels. And over time, you have been telling me how sort of what these novels share in terms of kind of your intellectual project. But I want to give you a chance to sort of sum up your, your thoughts, your conclusions about what these novels say about sociality, antisociality, and, and the value of society.
1: Yeah, so th- these are all novels that, as I've tried to suggest, I think kind of emerge at a moment where the problem of antisociality was kind of very much a public and political problem, this question of what do we owe each other and what do we think of as the kind of shared aims of a society? So clearly, this is a moment where kind of, the idea of, kind of the antisocial individual kind of out for themselves and kind of, unconnected to other people becomes kind of, appealing, but also a kind of complicated and vexed figure. And so for me, what, what most fascinates about these novels and what I found most Interesting even, you know, kind of for thinking about the continued relevance of like these possibly old fashioned sounding concepts, society, um, social totality, social determinism. Um, What's really valuable about them, these novels, is that they show us that the the impulse toward the experiment with kind of feeling antisocial is actually never able to escape. The knowledge of the ways that we're socially determined, right? The ways that we are subject to social forces that exist outside us, and for me, kind of as a, just as a, a attempting to get a genuine sense of of what these novels are trying to say. I think these are ultimately novels that kind of suggest the inescapability right for as much as we might think we want to the inescapability of that larger sense of society um, that larger horizon of relationality that exists beyond the individual and even beyond individual ties and what I think is most important about that is that it, it impels us to see the importance of of collective shared struggle both within and against those larger social forces so for me to to acknowledge that there is this kind of this thing this abstract collective that we call society is to kind of necessarily admit and to see the necessity of collective struggle against it. And I think that these are not novels about collective struggle, but these are novels about the way in which the figure of the individual, no matter how much they claim to kind of get rid of social responsibility, can never escape that sense of being in relation to kind of a larger social system that in some way is the site of forces of oppression and exclusion and exploitation, and that's why I think that kind of society is the kind of mirror figure for the possibility of shared struggle.
0: Theodore Martin teaches English at UC Irvine. His book is Contemporary Drift, and we've been talking about an essay he contributed to the new volume The Big No, edited by Kenan Ferguson. Ted, thanks for your remarks and insights and for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And that program first aired on January 24th, 2022. And this is CS suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, as Albert Einstein once said. And we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio resources and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.